Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. We're even now. Thanks. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Ryan Kelly, and Jeff Mills. Tonight on Fast, we are following the after-hours action shares of KV Home and RH. Both stocks are on the move on earnings. What these companies are saying about the health of the housing market. Plus, GameStop to the moon. It's not just the rally cry on Reddit. Why one Wall Street analyst is raising their price target on the stock by 1,067%. And later, the real money in fake buildings. The virtual real estate market is on fire, how you can cash in on this craze. But we start off with another tech wreck on Wall Street. The Nasdaq falling more than 2% today. Tesla, Facebook, Netflix, Apple all dropping sharply. And check out the IWM, small cap ETF. Losses accelerating into the close. It is now down 6.5% this week alone. All this happening as yields actually fell today. So what do you make of all this, Guy? You know, Mel, you just it's like you're in my head because I was going to start with the Russell, you know, and the Russell's actually down nine percent since the all time high we made, I think, on Mar- that Monday, March 15th. And I'll tell you, we do this. We do a call every day at 1230 and Tim Seymour came out. I think the market was at the highs. And he said there's something about this day I don't particularly like. And he, he turned out to be a bit of a soothsayer. And I'll say this, you know, this is one of those Moby Dick days, you know, when you just bookmark a certain page. Well, bookmark this one, fellas and girls, because. I think a lot of really interesting things happened. The VIX obviously rallied late. Russell down big. You know, you mentioned tech getting whacked with interest rates actually going lower. There are a lot of things not to like about today, um, and it's got me a little bit concerned. Now, with that said, I've been concerned for a while, but today really had a weird feel at all day, and it manifests itself late with the sell-off. Mm-hmm. The depressed VIX at 1230 this afternoon, Tim, was one of the sooths that you were talking about, so to speak. It's, I appreciate the old man in the sea giving me some 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 props here. I you know I think you've got a case where you you've you've got VIX too low for the risks in the market. Uh, I'm looking at uh, you know head and shoulders is a shampoo. It's also a technical term where a lot of charts look like they're broken. They're on that right shoulder and they're either going to rest here after already a big pullback or there's a lot more to go. Again, dollar strength worries me. Uh, the fact that the industrials are doing okay is hiding uh, a lot of pain in other parts of the market. So if we look at the VIX, uh, we, the spike, if we look at the IWM falling, if we look at uh, weak technology, Jeff, and these were all tea leaves, how would you read them? Yeah, it's, it's one of these days where it's hard to find a narrative that fits. You know, usually it's rates up, tech down. That wasn't the case today. But I, I think the underlying trend continues to be that technology and growth probably lag on the upside and they probably lag on the downside as well. And that's what you saw today. And I think it comes back to one really important thing and that this is going to be an earnings driven market. You have high PMIs that's going to lead to higher earnings revisions. And I think you have more room for that in value. And that's exactly what we saw today. We saw everyone in financials and energies and materials and industrials. And then we saw that part of the market where P's can compress. And you look at, you know, the SPAC trade and ARC and Zoom and all these other names. That's what got hit the most today. So I still think looking at those areas where you're seeing better earnings revisions, that is energy, financials, materials, small caps. I know they've been hit, but still small caps, value. I still think that's the trade. 
Um, I think of small caps and I think about inflation. And when was the last time we actually mentioned General Mills, not Jeff Mills? General Mills, the company, <laughs> the cereal maker in our A block of fast money. I can't remember a time when we did, but General Mills actually talked about inflation and talked about inflation being widespread, talked about it being global, Brian Kelly. Um, and I'm wondering if that's a concern of mm-hmm. yours and if the IWM move is really if it sort of underscores this notion that inflation could be here, small caps in general, they don't have as much pricing power and we'll have to absorb those shocks. Yeah, I think that's exactly what the market told you today. I mean, look at what market, what sectors were strong and what were weak. It was the small caps who can't pass on along uh, price increases, the tech high multiple names that are going to get hit because you have to readjust your earnings expectations and reduce your multiple on higher inflation. But then the cyclicals, industrials, those actually did pretty well. And if you think about it, okay, we had some pretty weak economic news over the last couple days, PMIs notwithstanding. And so is there going to be another stimulus yet? Maybe it's going to be in green and infrastructure. That's all for the cyclical. So the market's telling you this. You're going to have to earn a lot more money next year to beat inflation. The place where the market thinks that their earnings are going to accelerate are the cyclicals and the industrials. The market does not think that small caps and tech and the general of the mills, not the Jeff Mills, they're not going to be able to pass on higher prices to their consumers. (laughs) Uh, Guy, would you agree with that interpretation of the market? 100 percent. BK, spot on. It's a good thing General Mills doesn't make uh, things that people eat. Oh, oh, wait a second. They do. And I bring that up not to be a jerk, although it might sound that way, because we had a conversation about exactly that week and a half ago. Inflation is here, folks. Just acknowledge it. Don't be Jerome Powell in the Federal Reserve because it's here. Now, they're going to say it's transitory because they have no choice but to say things like that. But I don't think it's going away anytime soon. And they're going to have to address it at some point. To me, now everybody's talking about it. But that's been one of my concerns all along. And when a company like General Mills brings it up, uh, you have to take notice. I mean, it's here in spades. Whether, they, whether the Fed acknowledges or not doesn't really matter. Uh, it's going to manifest itself not only in the things we buy to eat, but in, in obviously in, in energy prices and right along a litany of different things, health care, education, all those things. And oh, by the way, asset prices as well. The only place you're not seeing it is in wage growth, which is the place where they want it. And so you have a bit of a conundrum for our Federal Reserve that I don't think they can paint their way out of. Mm-hmm. Tim, do you, do you agree? I mean, the notion that the Fed doesn't have a good read on inflation, would you agree with that? I, I love, I, do they make Lucky Charms? Because I love Lucky Charms. I think so. And I eat a lot of Lucky Charms. But yeah, they're good. Um, and and I, I think when you, look, inflation, I, I'm less concerned about food and energy inflation. And in fact, the Fed kind of strips that out, right? Core inflation doesn't, doesn't really have that. I think we're in a place where the markets are concerned uh, about COVID headwinds that have resuscitated themselves. And yet, of course, COVID-based stocks like, COVID, like Peloton and Zoom uh, continue to get whacked. So I, I think we're getting to a place where we're paying the piper. We have this conversation with Mike Wilson on, on PEs and where we should be in this market right now. Uh, market doesn't know what to do. Yields are going lower. Market should have liked that. Tech should be bouncing. Uh, tech today, triple Qs at the 100-day. The yeah, market doesn't know where to go. So what do you do, Brian, in times like this, where it just seems like a churn? Every day, it's just a churn. Yeah, so... 
That's exactly right. So I would say that the easy money has probably been made in the stock market. So if you've been fortunate enough to buy at the lows last March or any time over the last year, you've made the easy money. Now it's more difficult because is inflation going to continue? Are we going to get a stagflationary environment? I mean, you look at what's going on with the supply chain. That doesn't look like that's the, the clogs in the supply chain doesn't look like we're going to have any reprieve. We had the Suez Canal today. There's a blockage in there. That's going to make things harder to get. Let's say you got to go all the way around the Horn of Africa. That's 10 days onto a trip of, of an oil tanker. That's going to increase the price of things. Now, the Suez Canal will likely get unblocked soon, but the point is the Fed thinks, oh, we'll just raise rates and we'll slow the economy down. It doesn't matter. The supply chain is where the problem is. This is not demand pull inflation. This is cost push. And that's where the Fed's wrong. But, you know, what do I know? Another first mention uh, also in in Fast Money history of the Suez Canal in the A block of the show. But, Brian, just as a follow up, (laughs) it almost sounds and I I asked you this as a follow up because you in the past have made bold calls at market periods in market periods like this. Is this more of a if you've seen the run, you would put some money into cash right now or do you just hedge what you got? I, I think, you know, listen, if you're in the high flyer techs, high P.E., uh, names for the reopening Zooms, I think you can take those and put those into cash. Then you can wait and see what happens to the economy over the next quarter or two. So you harvest some of your gains. Maybe you roll a little bit into the cyclicals because that's going to be a little bit of a hedge port portfolio. But I don't think you need to be, you know, 100% long this market or borrowing money to be long this market. There, there are signs there that things are getting tired and there are signs there that things are concerned. So easy money's been made. Take a little bit off the table. Maybe, you know, we're coming into May. Maybe you take a nice summer vacation and come back in the fall and see what happens. All right. Well, as tech tumbles, continues to tumble, our next guest says it is not too late to get into the winning reopening stocks. Dan Suzuki is a deputy chief investment officer at Richard Bernstein Advisors. Uh, Dan, great to have you with us. Um, Your message to investors is also similar to what Brian has just been saying in terms of do yourself a favor and get out of technology. So you do that. And you still think that there's a, a pretty long runway into the cyclical trade. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's good to see you again, Melissa. I think that, um, you know, it's kind of a little bit boring maybe for your viewers, but I basically have the same message that I had last time I came on the show, which I think was back in December, is that we're sitting on the precipice of, you know, probably the biggest profits recovery in a decade. And, you know, the way to maximize your gains is to sort of gain, you know, increase your, your exposure and your leverage to those parts of the the market, which are again, you know, the deep cyclical, small caps, value, emerging markets, all the stuff that's, that's generally been working, you know, although it's sold off a bit over the last few days. Um, and I think you want to also minimize risk. And I think the way to minimize risk is to avoid, you know, the frothiest, most expensive parts of the market, which are also the most crowded. And also, if you're worried about interest rates, it's the same areas of the market that are at risk. So I think, you know, you can both maximize your gains and minimize your your risk at the same time. And, and, And it's not often that you can do that in the markets. Hey, Dan, it's Jeff Mills. Thanks for being on. I just had a quick question, you know, on this cyclical theme. One of the areas that I think has has been forgotten is real estate and REITs. You know, this is an area that got thrown out last year because of exposure to office buildings and strip malls and things of that nature. Uh, How do you feel about that particular area of the market when you're thinking about the cyclical trade? Because it has been kind of a stealth underperformer this year. Yeah, it's a it's a great point, Jeff. I think that, um, 
you know, if you think about it, you know, a lot of things, normal cyclicality got flipped on its head last year. You know, tech, which is actually usually quite cyclical, was actually very defensive last year. And then REITs and real estate, which is actually usually very defensive, was actually very cyclical last year. And I think that just speaks to the nature of the pandemic. So I do think in general, investors are going to be best served looking to the areas of the market that have the most runway for recovery, which means they have to have gotten hit last year real estate's included in that. I just think that, you know, if there are areas that may take a little bit longer for that profits recovery to come through, you know, real estate is probably one of those areas. But, you know, if you have a long time horizon, I think it does make sense. Hey, Dan, BK. So I'm kind of curious. The one conundrum in the market here is we're starting to see some weakness over the last couple months, and maybe it's weather related, maybe it's not. PMIs are decent. But I, I guess in your mind, does the cyclical recovery in this reopening trade, does it depend on a strong economy? Or if we simply get infrastructure spending a $3 trillion bill, uh, is that enough to keep this cyclical trade growing? Or do we actually have to have real economic growth underneath? Brian, I, I think it's we absolutely have to see real economic growth. Uh, and I think that we are going to see big economic growth. And I think, you know, to, to be fair, you know, there's a lot more visibility than typically at this point in the cycle than you normally have. So, you know, some of that recovery is absolutely priced in here. But I think that if you look at the history of markets, there's clearly, you know, we're still early in this. I think there's plenty of room for recovery. The fact that I'm sitting in my bedroom talking to you guys through a camera speaks to how just unnormal, how much room there is for a recovery and opening up of the economy. So I think this is a long-term story. And I think that that economic growth will come through and that'll benefit the cyclicals. So that's a lot of information, Dan. Next thing you know, you're going to tell us you're wearing sweatpants too and not proper <laughs> pants. Um, but just to get to this, this, this runway, you said the runway is going to be 12 to 18 months. The market, of course, as you know, is a forward-looking um, instrument. And so at what point do you say it's time to pull the ripcord on even the cyclical trade? What are you looking for? Yeah, well, you know, historically, you know, again, you know, we probably priced in a bit more than normal for this point in the recovery. But historically, you still want to keep you still want to own cyclicals, you know, while the acceleration is still happening. So I think that, you know, if you look at the year on year numbers coming off of last year's crazy lows, you're going to see some, you know, some some ups and downs in the trend. But I think the underlying trend here is that you're still continuing to see further acceleration from here for a while. So it's not until late in the year where you get things like, you know, growth potentially starting to peak out on a, on a uh, and then looking at stimulus starting to peak out, people starting to talk about taxes. So at some point, there may be a difficult discussion to how much of that the market can absorb without some more volatility. But I think that, you know, we're ways off from there. So I think, you know, we have a good amount of recovery, good amount of acceleration. So I don't think you want to jump off the cyclical trade here. And by the way, it's cheaper, you know, than the rest of the market. Dan, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Dan Suzuki from the bedroom. <laughs> Tim, final word. <laughs> well, I, you can't have it both ways. I, I think oil is going higher. I think energy is going higher. And I think ultimately cyclicality is going higher. But uh, I'm very concerned what the dollar is doing to some of these trades right now, including emerging markets, which uh, China's in a correction right now, if you look at the FXI. All right. Coming up, a media meltdown. Shares of Viacom and Discovery tanking today. Should you cut the cord on these names, we'll bring you the trades. But first, we just got a big read on the health of the housing market. KB Home and RH both on the move in the after hours on earnings. Their calls are now underway. We'll get you all the headlines after this quick break. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a double earnings alert for you. KB Home and Restoration Hardware, both on the move in the after hours on results. Their calls are now underway. Full team coverage standing by to break down the reports. Let's kick things off with Leslie Picker and more on KB's quarter. Leslie. Hey, Mal. KB Home's call is now underway. It started about 15 minutes ago. CEO Jeffrey Mesger noting that they utilized price levels to manage costs, which of course have been rising recently. Mesger noting on the call that supply remains tight with existing home inventory now down nearly 30 percent year over year. Shares, though, down on a top line miss, lower by about 5 percent right now. First quarter revenue trailing analyst estimates still pretty much all measures of profitability coming in stronger than expected and widening. Bottom line, beating by about 10 cents per share and housing gross profit margins rising by 320 basis points to more than 21 percent in the first quarter. Now, the home builder said the average selling price increased 2 percent to $397,000 during the quarter. A big reason for you know what some may see as a more modest increase represents the mix of homes sold targeting first-time home buyers, which tend to have smaller footprints and lower prices for their homes. Mesger said in the release, quote, the ongoing strength in our order activity reflects the favorable demographics underlying demand. Millennials, the largest adult population in the U.S., are now in their prime home building year, home buying years and continue to represent our largest cohort of buyers underscoring our competitive advantage in serving first-time buyers and success in building homes in desirable locations at affordable price points. Now, worth noting, KB Home had been up more than 30% so far this year, so perhaps some uh, profit-taking in the after-hours. Mel. Leslie, thanks. Leslie Picker. Um, Jeff Mills, do you like KB? I do. I like all of the home builders, actually, and there might be a little profit taking here. But overall, I, I still think the setups are really good. I said it on our call this afternoon, but there are more real estate agents right now than homes for sale. So the supply is really thin. And even with interest rates rising, uh, I, I don't think it's going to matter because the demand is there. And, and I was really interested in hearing the outlook. And I think the outlook is generally still very good. So you can go down the line and look at DHI, Lennar. I mean, these are all companies that are trading at eight or nine times forward earnings. They're breaking out to new highs here. KBH specifically only trading at eight times forward earnings. It broke above 40, retested it, and has moved higher. So uh, I think there's some upside here kind of across the board in the home builders. Here's a puzzle guy that I have going on in my mind, and that is oh, the pandemic. No. I, I don't like puzzles. Just bear with go me. Go ahead. If the pandemic created conditions in which there was a huge increase in demand for home buying and the pandemic, you know, is over and the economy reopens and people could go wherever they want and spend money on everything in the world and not necessarily have to be at home, then ha- if the demand lessens, what will that do to prices? And does it make these stocks still attractive? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, that, that's, that is the question, right? I mean, if the, the, the world does reopen, is it by definition going to sort of put a short-term kibosh on some of these names? Jeff brings up the point about valuation, and I think that's fair. And look, if that is a concern, you look at a name like Lennar that's been a rocket ship or DHI, those are the two ones that have broken out. I think you're saying, you know what, it's time to take profits. I'm more in the camp 
that those two stocks have broken up and you take and, and you continue to let them run both LEN and DHI, DHI quickly in terms of uh, KBH. Jeff makes a good point. Forty one ish was the previous all time high back in October. And then it sold off from there. We're trading 41 now. What was resistance becomes support. Tomorrow, that's going to be critical for it to hold 41. All right. Up next, Restoration Hardware. That stock is higher after reporting results. The call is underway. Let's get to Kate Rogers with the numbers. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Well, it looks like a lot of people are still redecorating RH reporting fourth quarter earnings and revenue that topped expectations, seeing high demand for its high-end products. CEO Gary Friedman said that trend is poised to continue, forecasting revenue growth of between 15 and 20 percent in 2021, sales growth of at least 50 percent in Q1, despite continuing difficulties with ramping up vendor production and some challenges that are ongoing with ocean freight and port congestion. He called the results, results rather overall a systemic lift and said in a shareholder letter, quote, the fact that we have a booming housing market, a record stock market, low interest rates, the expectation of a rebound in the economy and jobs market, combined with the recent further acceleration in our demand trends, has us feeling more rather than less optimistic. The company is also opening a new 1 million square foot distribution center in Southern California this spring that is going to uh, decrease its delivery times for certain products, including outdoor furniture and upholstery. He also said the company pushes into homes and hotels and that they've received multiple offers to buy some of these homes sight unseen. Over the last year, the stock is up around 400%, hitting a new high just this week. And tomorrow, of course, the CEO will be on Mad Money exclusively to break this all down. Melissa, back over to you. Sight unseen. What a sign of the times. Kate, thanks. Kate Rogers. Um, Tim, you still like RH? I do. I, like the, the multiple I'm scratching my head on, at least you know, on a trailing year at about 65 times forward, it's, it's, it's a bit better. Um, I, I, I do agree with all of those trends. And, and I think the, uh, the trends around the pandemic with, with people you know, nesting more, I, I don't think that that changes. And, and again, it's part of our last conversation on housing. Um, with job markets now very much uh, a lot more location independent, I think, I think housing continues. But again, massive run. I mean, year over year, you're up uh, 520% on RH, 520% off those lows. So in- insane. We've got a lot more ahead here on Fast Money. Here's what is coming up next. From real estate to virtual realty, there is a building boom breaking out in the fake world. How you can invest in it. Plus, a bold call on GameStop. Just wait until you hear how high one analyst says this stock is going. All that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fast Money. There is a building boom breaking out, but it's not happening in your backyard. It is happening in a fake world called the metaverse. The virtual real estate market is on fire right now, and our next guest says there is real money to be made in this fake land grab. Let's bring in Janine Yorio, Managing Director at Republic Real Estate. They're launching a fund that lets a select group of investors buy real estate, virtual real estate. Janine, great to have you with us. So nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I was reading uh, the, the white paper that you have on your site about virtual real estate, and it sounded like you had been resistant to this idea for quite some time, but finally came around to this notion. So 
What actually convinced you that this is an asset worth investing in? So let me clarify, I hadn't been resistant. In fact, my colleague TJ Kawamura and I have been talking about this for a while. This really was his brainchild to create a fund around the concept of investing in virtual real estate. But in order to understand why it's really an asset, you have to take a step back and understand what virtual real estate really is. If you've ever played a video game, whether it's Madden or Super Mario Brothers or Fortnite, you know that as your character runs around that video game, you enter buildings, you walk across fields, all of those are opportunities to advertise or to interact with brands or companies or products. We've seen that in in-game advertising. That's a multi-billion dollar industry. What's unique about uh, the metaverse today is that virtual worlds are being designed specifically for adults where they can live inside these virtual worlds and carry out their life. And what's unique and happening now is that those virtual worlds are being built on top of the Ethereum blockchain which means that transactions inside those worlds are happening in cryptocurrencies. So you have a confluence of two trends. Mm -hmm. You have people who've been forced inside their home, and so they've been living life entirely online for nearly a year now. And you also have a generation of people who grew up playing video games, who grew up playing Sims or Second Life, or even children who are playing Fortnite or mm -hmm. Minecraft or Roblox. And now they're spending more and more time in virtual worlds so companies are starting to advertise them to advertise to them where they are. So virtual real estate is a way for those companies to buy the land, the pixels, the parcels inside those games, put ads up, put stores up, put communities inside there where they can market directly to customers. OK, so it sounds to me um, and forgive me because I'm sort of new to this, as I think many people in our audience are, um, that there are a couple ways where this asset actually can make you money. And that is the increase in the value of of that property itself, but also you can generate revenue by selling advertising. Is that correct? You can do lots of things with mm -hmm. it. Um, let me give you some examples. So there are many metaverses. There isn't just one. But the, the oldest one, the, the oldest crypto-based one is called Decentraland. Land in Decentraland was selling for about $500 a parcel in 2019. Today, those same parcels are trading for about $7,800. Strictly from a capital appreciation standpoint, we've seen a more than 10x return or nearly 10x return in under two years. In the Sandbox, which is another metaverse, four months ago, parcels were trading there for $30 each. Today, they're trading for $880 a piece. So there's a tremendous opportunity to speculate on the land itself. But to the people who have more imagination, who are capable of actually building, mm -hmm. you can put a, a building, a casino, a store on your parcel. You can generate revenue. You can charge rent. You can sell space for advertising. You can build a museum and charge admission. There's really no end to the things you can do. And the beauty of these metaverses is that 3D developers are treating them like a blank canvas, and they're doing all sorts of creative things that are bringing thousands and thousands of users inside them at a time when people need human connection more than ever. Uh, so has there been secondary sales? In other words, is it just the market bidding up these parcels of land and, and you're buying them from the, I don't even know who you're buying it from, to be honest. Are you buying it from, let's say, Decentraland? Let's just use that example. They're um, both primary uh -huh. and secondary sales, and there are marketplaces that have been built around these properties. So digital real estate, they're NFTs, Right. just like the Beeple sale was an NFT sale that happened at Christie's Auction House two weeks ago. It's another form of non-fungible token that you can trade between people. So sometimes you're buying directly from the game developer. Sometimes you're buying from a reseller who bought the property and now wants to sell it. And there are marketplaces that have been built specifically to address the secondary market. OK. 
Okay. And how do we know that there is an element of scarcity in, in any of these metaverses? Who's to say that the, the operator of the metaverse can create more land and, and add it to that metaverse? So that is one of the beautiful things about the blockchain. And that is why people like it. It keeps people honest. So the developers of these virtual worlds, when they initiate, they publish a white paper and they state exactly how many parcels they're going to create, how they're going to develop them, hold them internally, sell them, who can buy them, what can be done on them. And the blockchain um, through the decentralized ledger actually keeps a record of who buys and sells them. So it's a way to keep the developer honest at a time when their land prices might be exploding. A greedy developer might want to issue more parcels, but all of the holders of that land can actually have some transparency into these virtual Mm -hmm worlds to make sure to keep the developers honest. Janine, this is fascinating. Hope you'll come back. Appreciate it. Uh, I would love to. Thank Janine, you. Janine Yorio. Um, I go to Brian Kelly, because obviously this is happening. This explosion in demand is happening alongside, as Janine had mentioned, the explosion in interest in cryptocurrency. Yeah, absolutely. And this stuff is just completely fascinating. And, you know, you might say, oh, this is crazy. It's fake land and all of that. But this is the proof of concept. This is how you go from kind of your your regular world to your digital world. And I've spoke about the idea of a digital twin before. But if you think about like what an NFT could be, let's say Nike decides to sell a pair of Air Jordans for your digital twin, your avatar, that they only make a hundred of them. You could then wear that around your digital neighborhood. And that's how the younger generation is living right now. So it's difficult for old folks like me to kind of wrap your head around it. But look at what kids are doing. Look at what how they're interacting with the internet and you'll start to see that there is some value here determining that value is difficult i'll tell you that right now for me it's very difficult i think the easier way to play this is by the smart contract platforms ethereum polka dot atoms all of which i'm long um you know on the call we were talking about this and jeff mills is probably the one who who saw this as a real possible asset class immediately and that's because you have a young daughter who plays in these worlds it's exactly right. And you first hear it and you think this is this is insane. It's not real. It makes no sense. And it's easy to laugh at it in the beginning. But when you think about the, the ability to actually generate revenue, whether you're a company or an individual, and I watch my seven-year-old and she's playing Roblox. And whenever they release a new flying golden unicorn, you know, she has to have it. Or if she trades away one of her digital pets and is upset about it, forget it. Game over. The day's ruined. So she really cares about these things and she applies a lot of value to them. So I'm seeing it through her eyes and there's something to it. Yeah. And by the way, there's a whole generation living in this virtual world. So uh, this is here to say, I think. Coming up, did Elon Musk just prove Jay Powell all wrong? What Tesla just did that has one of our traders saying, absolutely, we'll explain. But first, a big call on one of Guy's favorite names. I one analyst getting so bullish on CME when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of CME rallying as Bank of America upgrades the stock to a buy. It's our call of the day. Guy, what's your take here? I like it. I mean, they were neutral for a while. They upgraded it to a buy. I think the all-time high in the stock, if I'm not mistaken, is on 225 September 2019. And I think we take it out. Naysayers would say 28 times next year's number is too expensive for an exchange. And that's probably true. But, you know, you know Terry Duffy's been on our show dozens of times, one of the best operators in the country. And I think we're in an environment now where their products are going to explode. Rising rate environment, that was part of the note. So I like this call. I think they might be a tad late, but you know what? I think the stock's going higher regardless. Terry's probably watching right now, in fact. Tim, what do you think? 
Yeah, I think the multiple makes a lot of sense. I think the EPS growth around 10% makes a lot of sense. I think the, the, the volatility in some of the asset classes where these guys are the market makers, they are the acts. And as you get into commodities and FX and whatnot, that's the story here. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, clearly at a time when you've seen uh, year over year, the comps look, look fantastic. And I think that's part of the story, too. All right. Coming up, media stocks in meltdown mode. What is going on in the space and how should you trade these names? Find out next. Plus, is it, plus, is it game on or game over for GameStop? One Wall Street analyst just raised her price target on the stock by more than a thousand percent. The details on that big call when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. We've got a buzzkill in the media space. Check out Viacom falling 23% today. It's second day of losses after the company announced plans to raise $3 billion in new stock offering. Uh, joining us on the Fast Line, Lightshed Partners uh, co-founder Rich Greenfield. Rich, great to have you with us. This is down 23% after yesterday is down 9%. So what do you think? Look, I, I think a lot of media stocks have moved far too fast, too quickly. People have been very excited about everybody's going to become Netflix. It just, you know, everyone's going to transform into direct to consumer streaming companies. And it's hard. And I think the reason Viacom, and I really applaud Shari Redstone and Bob Backish for taking advantage. Their stock got to a point, probably was got to the point of being, you know, meaningfully overvalued versus its peers. And they took advantage of it and they raised capital. And I think raising capital is what these companies need to do because the streaming wars are going to be so expensive and so challenging. Having a lot of capital is going to be very important for anyone who's trying to do battle with Netflix, Disney Plus, Amazon, etc. So I think it's a smart move. I know the market doesn't like it today, but I think it's the right long-term move for these companies to be raising capital when their stock prices go vertical the way some of them have gone in, in recent weeks. Hey, Rich, it's Tim. I, I agree. In fact, I think it's they, they, they should be out there because I'm going to make an argument that in Viacom, um, this is a stock that nobody wanted to own until until Reddit came along. And, yeah, I understand the streaming dynamics, um, but help me understand where short interest. And again, this is in this name particularly. Um, and the story around this was was a disproportionate amount of the move in the stock. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think, you know, I, look, I don't think Viacom was moving up purely because of Reddit. I mean, I think we've seen that in crazy stocks like AMC and Fubo, which we've had, you know, sell ratings on. But I think when you look at Viacom, look, I think people got excited. I think momentum and sort of the machines took over. And you saw the same thing with Discovery. I mean, you've seen a number of media stocks that have dramatically out. In our minds, Disney's had the most incredible content streak. You know, look what they have with Falcon and Winter Soldier, Mandalorian, WandaVision. They've had this incredible content streak. And yet, since Disney launched Disney+, Plus, you've actually seen companies like Viacom and Discovery outperform, which it, you kind of just sort of scratch your head of, like, how is that possible when you look at the relative content prowess? And so I think this is sort of the market resetting sort of something that shouldn't have happened and sort of resetting the, 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 the relative stock moves of these companies. Hey, Rich, the news out of Disney the other day, maybe it was two days ago, I lose track of time, but it obviously did not augur well for AMC. Are you surprised with how fast um, your call on AMC is sort of coming to fruition here? I think the AMC closed at 9 bucks today. Look, you all have seen, I mean, your parent company was the first to really, you know, if you look at what NBC, Universal, and Jeff Shell pioneered in terms of cutting windows down to seven, you know, as little as 17 days, You've seen Paramount go to 30 to 45 days before they go to Paramount+. Plus. 
Obviously, Warner Brothers is day and date this year and now 45 days on big movies next year. Disney's obviously, as you just highlighted, condensing windows. The world is changing. I mean, look, movie theaters are not going away. You and your families and your kids and friends, you're still going to go to movies for years to come. I just don't think the movie business is, you know, the theatrical business is going to look anything like. It'll be a much smaller business reserved for huge blockbusters, you know, that come out. There may be 15 of them a year. But I don't think going to the movies is going to be the same activity. It leads to the, the underlying cash flows is what sort of the retail Reddit traders simply don't understand. AMC is never going to work through its debt. It's essentially, you know, it'll never cover its debt. And that's the bottom line is they don't have the cash flow to get back to where they used to be. Even, on the, even, if, they, even if the movie business comes back to where it was in, in 2019, and I think, as you point out, all signs are is that we're going to have a very different movie business in the future than that we've had in the past. Rich, always great to speak with you. Thanks. Thanks for having me on short notice. Rich Greenfield of uh, Lightshed. Brian Kelly, where do you go in this media trade here? Well, I, so, I mean, I, I agree with Rich. I think a lot of these things got way ahead of themselves. You look at Discovery, right? I mean, that went from 21 to $70, all just because they had Discovery Plus. And, yeah, is it going to be another revenue stream? Sure, but all of that is priced in, and they probably priced in several other products that we haven't thought about. So if I think about it, you know, where is the money going to go? It's going to go to the producers of content. So, you know, maybe Disney's a play, maybe. But as I've always said, and I'll say it again, I think you buy L.A. real estate. Seems like that's where the money's going to be. Or virtual real estate. Uh, Coming up, GameStop to the moon. (laughs) One one Wall Street analyst just upped their price target on the stock. But get this, more than 1,000%. We'll tell you all about it in our call of the day and later. Crypto cars, you won't believe what you can now buy with your Bitcoin. Those details straight ahead. Much more fast, too. Welcome back to Fast Money. Jeffrey's out with a very big call on GameStop. Analyst Stephanie Wissink upping her price target to $175 from $15 a share. So overnight, she went up $160 after an earnings release, which was underwhelming, and an analyst call, which did not answer any questions. Um, We read through her note. I did, at least. And the way she got to it, she switched to a price-to-sales multiple, and she took her basket of stocks in her coverage universe took out the outliers in terms of multiple, like a Zillow, et cetera, found an average of 4.2, and then applied a 20% discount to that and came up with $175. Her basket, though, includes names like a Chewy and an eBay. And Jeff Mills, I'm just wondering if you think GameStop's business is only a 20% discount to a business like a Chewy or an eBay. Yeah, listen, I I don't think so. This is a stock that I actually liked at around $20. I thought the worst was behind them. They were moving into digital. They have e-commerce now at 30% of sales. So things are moving in the right direction. But to your point, the way that they're getting to this multiple and the comps that they're using for the valuation, I just think there's a lot of risk between here and that point for a stock that typically trades at less than one-time sales. So this is not for me uh, at this price. Yeah, Tim? Yeah, and, and stretches into affiliated platform revenue, you know, like, you know, ad platforms, marketplace, CRM. NFTs. You know, I, I agree. NFTs and virtual yeah. worlds. <laughs> it's full circle. Right. So, so I, I, I find it a, a huge stretch. And, and, you know, look, going from 
15 bucks to 175 or whatever this move was um, is is really tough to explain. I'm not sure why anyone would do it. Um, honestly, it's a big risk as an analyst to, to make this call. And again, to, to quickly go to a price to sales multiple, I, I, again, the, the comp group and just putting at a 20 percent discount to companies who are in a totally different line of business just because they happen to have uh, a, a, an online business. Um, and saying that 50 percent of sales in stores that were closed are going to automatically go to, to digital and no problem. We can close the stores. We can save the expenses. Um, and now this will just be online again in-store sales that were physical, that were not digital. I mean, it, it's 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 frustrating to hear this, honestly. Right. Um, let's bring in Mike Coe. Mike spotted some pretty big options activity on GameStop. What'd you see, Mike? Yeah, I mean, the uh, unusual options activity in GameStop has pretty much been nonstop, really. And right now what we're seeing is that the options market is implying a move of about $65 higher or lower. That's 54% of today's closing stock price by April expiration, which is a little over three weeks away. Of course, the stock moved over $60 today, so maybe that implied move is actually conservative. But the most active options that are expiring in April were actually, believe it or not, the 800 strike calls. So people seem to be able to suspend their disbelief here um, and are willing to bet that this stock could move even more sharply to the upside than it has already this year, which is pretty remarkable. Mike, thanks for that. By the way, um, GameStop is doing a secondary. Jeffries is on the deal. There, of course, is a wall, in theory, between investment banking and research, and there are full disclosures at the end of every analyst report in terms of potentially seeking or gaining investment banking business. So we want to put that out there. Um, but I thought I would have to bring it up. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, get Bitcoin out of your dreams and into your car. That's the worst song in the whole world. Big news out of Tesla today. That's got crypto fans cheering. Details next. News alert here on a possible Bitcoin ETF. Bob Pisani's got the details. Hey, Bob. Hello, Melissa. And uh, the good news is Fidelity has announced that they're getting into the Bitcoin ETF business. The bad news is everyone, including the good humor man, is also getting into the Bitcoin ETF business. There's a very long line of companies that have announced they want a Bitcoin ETF soon. They don't have one. Nobody does yet. But we had recently uh, Scaramucci, our friend from Skybridge, announced uh, he wanted to get into the Bitcoin ETF business. Uh, First Trust wants to do one. Morgan Stanley wants to do one. Wisdom Tree wants to do one. The one to watch here, Melissa, is Van Eck. They have filed for a Bitcoin ETF. Most importantly, the SEC has acknowledged the receipt of the application a week ago. What that means is they now have a legal obligation to give a ruling on the Bitcoin ETF to Van Eck. They have 45 days to either accept the application, reject the application, or extend it. Likely, they'll extend it. But everybody's getting into this race. Melissa, back to you. Bob, thanks. Bob Pisani on the latest news in Bitcoin. Um, BK, yes, Van Eck is the one to watch. I thought Bob was going to say you got to watch Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. I would imagine that there is no reason for one to be in a fund where you're paying actual fees when you can be in an ETF if there is one that will minimize the fees to be investing in just Bitcoin, the asset. Yeah, I think that's right. And also, remember, a lot of what that Grayscale Bitcoin trusted is it traded at a premium. Mm -hmm. I suspect the Bitcoin trust, the Grayscale Bitcoin trust premium will collapse. And we've seen that. But as you get an ETF, you're right. I mean, the lower cost, uh, no premium to NAV. 
uh, is likely to happen. But what you're seeing here is big players making a bet on a changing of the guard at the SEC, and they're making a bet that sometime in 2021 that we're going to get an ETF here in the U.S. There's one in Canada that has just been going gangbusters. You can get it overseas. I think very, very soon, and by very soon, I mean probably Q3 or Q4 of this year, you get a Bitcoin ETF. All right. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Yeah, FedEx, again, big numbers, great valuation trades at a 6% discount to the S&P, and, and their TNT integration is finally behind you. Love those margins. Brian Kelly. Uh, for me, it's buy MP. Take advantage of the weakness. This is a rare earth play. And remember, the China-U.S. negotiations didn't go so well. MP, I think you buy that one. Yeah, the weakness off the back of a secondary. Jeff Mills. Talked a lot about leaning into cyclicality today. I think 3M is a good way to do it. Reasonably valued. I think there's solid upside here. Guy Adami, the real Guy Adami, not a virtual one. Yeah, I'm about to, good thing the show's over. I have to go to the virtual bathroom in the worst way. <laughs> Chicago Mercantile Exchange, CME, Terry Duffy, stud, back to you. Thanks for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.